Malaysia and Singapore sign new agreements, Malaysia and Myanmar take a hit in the latest Transparency International Corruption Rankings, and deliverables from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's visit to Manila. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is February 9th, 2023. On today's show... But we can't be angry when a partner elects to accept a deal with with the Chinese as opposed to accept a deal with an American company because it's just it's counterproductive and it doesn't reflect well on us when we then stand up afterward and imply that our partner doesn't understand the predatory economics being used by Beijing when really, you know, they are acting according to their own national interest. That was Blake Herzinger, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor on how forcing ASEAN countries to choose between Washington and Beijing can be a strategic mistake. More on that after the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Stephen Vo in the studio. Stephen is a research intern with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Hey, Stephen. Thanks so much, Karen. Happy to be here. So, Stephen, I know Tet just wrapped up in Vietnam. Can you explain why they're celebrating the Year of the Cat, not Year of the Rabbit? Well, as you know, Vietnam celebrates the cat rather than rabbit and buffalo rather than ox. Historians have different takes. But one explanation is that because of the country's reliance on agriculture, cats have always been preferred over rabbits for their ability to shoo away rice field rats. I don't entirely know, but I'll be sure to ask my grandparents who know everything uh, and keep you posted. Sounds good. Thank you for enlightening us. Moving on to our headlines, let's start with some encouraging news. Malaysian Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim made his first official visit to neighboring Singapore last Monday, following stops to Brunei and Indonesia earlier in January. Stephen, can you tell us what deals were announced? I'm glad you asked. The visit resulted in three major deliverables. The first was an agreement on digital economy cooperation, which covered cross-border data flows and electronic payments. The second, a framework on green economy cooperation, is the first such agreement Malaysia has signed with any country and covers collaboration on developing energy-related technology and EV standards. And the third deliverable was an MOU on cooperation in personal data protection and cybersecurity. Anwar and his wife also had a hybrid orchid species named after them. Did you know that they join a list of foreign dignitaries with orchid namesakes, including Vice President Kamala Harris and Queen Elizabeth? Wow. I didn't know orchid diplomacy was in Singapore's foreign policy toolbox. But that's pretty cool. What is the significance to the timing of Anwar's visit? Well, given that he was sworn into office just this November, analysts stressed that a core objective of his visit was to build closer personal rapport between his team and their Singaporean counterparts. But while the visit underlines the overall stability of Singapore-Malaysia ties in the post-COVID era, there are still some unresolved issues that could threaten the bilateral relationship, such as negotiations over the price of water purchased by Singapore or the cancellation of a high-speed rail project between Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. Moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how Anwar will prioritize these issues, especially since his agenda seems to be more occupied with domestic concerns, including inflation and flooding. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. What else has been going on in the region, Karen? Let's see. Watchdog organization Transparency International released the latest edition of its annual Corruption Perceptions Index on Tuesday. The index rates corruption perceptions by evaluating data from country experts and business folks and determines a national score between 0 and 100, with higher scores indicating more perceived transparency in the public sector. All in all, 2022 marked a mixed showing for ASEAN countries. Singapore scored an 83, which makes it the only Southeast Asian country with a score above 50. 
and the only Asian country ranked in the top 10. On the opposite end, Myanmar had the lowest score in the region at 23, marking a five-point drop from last year in light of the prolonged military rule and the maintenance of a golden firewall that limits information access online to only 1,200 government-approved websites. Meanwhile, Malaysia's score of 47 is one point lower than last year's and its worst performance in a decade. Reasons include the continued aftermath of the 1MDB scandal, pandemic stimulus packages that were rolled out without parliamentary debate, and Ahmad Zahid Hamidi's appointment to Anwar's cabinet. In case listeners have forgotten, Zahid himself is still facing 47 charges of bribery and money laundering. Anwar's daughter was also recently appointed as his senior advisor on economics and finance, working pro bono, which has sparked criticisms of nepotism. Given these issues, have there been any calls to look into institutional corruption? Well, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, MACC, began an investigation in December on the alleged misappropriation of more than $136 billion in government funds during former PM Muhyiddin Yassin's tenure in 2010 and 2021. The investigation focused specifically on the $21 million spent as stimulus during the pandemic. At the same time, Anwar ordered a review into a number of government projects under Muhyiddin, including a plan for flood mitigation projects and a state-owned 5G network. Then, two weeks ago, the MACC froze the bank accounts of Muhyiddin's Bersatu party. Muhyiddin has said that Bersatu will be asking the MACC to unfreeze its accounts, claiming that the party has maintained proper financial records. Frozen funds could impact Bersatu's campaign during state elections, which are supposed to run until March 18th. On his part, Anwar has denied using the MACC as a political tool against Bersatu. I know we've been covering Malaysia a lot recently, but what can I say? There really is never a dull day in politics there. Shifting from domestic developments to foreign policy, didn't U.S. Defense Chief Lloyd Austin visit the Philippines recently? Yes. Secretary Austin was in Manila from January 31st to February 2nd, his sixth trip to the Indo-Pacific region. The visit's most significant deliverable was an announcement to expand the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, or EDCA, to give the U.S. access to four more military bases in the Philippines. This brings the total number of available locations to nine. Why does this matter for the region, Stephen? Well, in Austin's own words, it's a really big deal, and also part of joint efforts to modernize the alliance. Under EDCA, U.S. troops do not maintain a permanent presence in the Philippines, but they can use military bases for joint training, pre-positioning of equipment, and can build facilities such as runways, field storage, and military housing. EDCA's expansion will broaden the U.S.'s strategic footing in the region, especially as China increases its military presence in the South China Sea. Although the exact locations of the sites have not yet been announced, Access to a base in northern Luzon is likely, as well as telling, since it is the closest part of the Philippines to Taiwan. Our program director, Greg Poling, has a great explainer on this topic. So check out his piece titled, The Transformation of the U.S.-Philippines Alliance, on the CSIS website. President Marcos Jr. is also in Japan this week. What kinds of deliverables are we expecting there? Several. Marcos's visits will last until February 12th, but at least seven bilateral agreements are expected to be signed across the fields of infrastructure development, defense, agriculture, and disaster relief. This will be the president's ninth trip abroad in almost as many months in office, but Marcos has defended his travel, stating that trips are a chance for the Philippines to introduce itself to foreign investors. However, 
Others have criticized the size of the accompanying delegation, which includes three members of Congress and six cabinet members, and said he should be focusing instead on domestic problems at home. Well, I'm not going to comment on how much taxpayers are footing for those plane tickets. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us. Happy to be here, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Blake Hertzinger. Stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners. As always, I am Greg Poling. You're listening to Southeast Asia Radio. And most importantly, I am joined by the real talent on the show, Alina Noor, who I know you painfully had to live without on the last episode. Welcome back, Alina. Not sure about the talented part, but hey, Greg. And the self-effacing Alina Noor. And even more importantly, we have a great guest this week. We're joined by Blake Hertzinger. Blake is a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's home-based out in Singapore, and the reason we brought him on this week is to talk about an article in Foreign Policy that he published early this month titled, Southeast Asia is Getting Squeezed by America's Embrace. But before we get into the article, Blake, I feel like non-resident at AEI doesn't really clarify uh, who you are. So why don't you give folks a little taste of your CV and what you're doing in Singapore? You bet. Thanks, Greg. And, and thanks, Greg and Elena, for having me. So I, I came to Singapore late 2013 with the U.S. Navy, uh, and I spent a few years here in uniform and then and then later left, as many do, because I met a very nice girl that worked out. So we're, we're now in Singapore with, with two kids. Uh, and for, for about five years after that, I, I worked in security cooperation in Southeast Asia, working with our partners to develop navies and coast guards and enhance relationships between the U.S. Navy, U.S. Uh, Coast Guard, and, and other military services with uh, their counterparts across Asia uh, as part of the Maritime Security Initiative and a few other things. Those listening obviously can't see, but I can see over your shoulder on the Zoom, your uh, book published last year with Jerry Doyle, Carrier, Carrier Killer, which is not the topic of today's discussion, uh, but maybe in the future we'll have you scare everybody with how, how China's rocket force is going to complicate things for the U.S. Navy. What we are here to talk about today is this article, which got uh, a fair amount of play for first thing on the new year, at least in the Twitter circles that, you know, all three of us move in. So let me give a, a quick summary and then you're welcome to tell me what I got wrong. But the bottom line is that you say that the U.S.'s insistence on a an approach to partnership with Southeast Asian uh, parties that suggest exclusivity, a quote, partner of choice. And I'm going to ask you what exactly a partner of choice is. Pushes many, if not most, partners away, um, is, you know, unappreciated in a region that's not interested in choosing sides, famously, between the U.S. and China. And in particular, uh, for a Navy guy, you seem really focused on uh, our refusal to engage in economic rulemaking in the region. I don't know why you're getting out of your lane and bashing the Indo-Pacific economic framework. That's usually what Alina and I do on the podcast. But uh, is, that a, is that a fair, quick hit? More econ, less exclusivity? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the tee up there for uh, navies as instruments of national economy and and having a very important peacetime role in uh, securing economic relations and, and sea lanes all over the world, which is actually one of the oldest purposes of the U.S. Navy uh, and something that uh, maybe in the last 20 to 30 years we've sort of forgotten in that unipolar moment, but uh, something that we're grappling with again, as you've seen uh, in Congress with the changes to uh, kind of the Navy's mission, which is reflected in U.S. code, 
which is important. Um, we need to remember that economics actually for, for really everyone kind of come first. And, and we've neglected that despite being the biggest source of foreign direct investment in Southeast Asia, you know, usually the first thing we want to talk about is defense and security. And that doesn't really fly with most of our partners. So I'm going to keep my powder dry for the moment on which parts of the article I wholeheartedly agree with and which I want to poke you on. I'm going to let Lena take the first, the first swing. But before we get there, let's define some terms. So you've got a great line, I think, at the end of paragraph two, quote, Washington is largely imagining status as a partner of choice. And if it expects to remain a compelling option for any kind of partnership, it must lead in areas that matter most to its partners rather than relying primarily on its security relationships. So what do you mean when you say that the U.S. has focused on being a partner of choice? So uh, and you raised kind of the, the origin of, of partner of choice in, in your first comments. And I think it's an interesting one because it's I looked actually to see if I could find you know, when we started using this. I could not. But it is, you know, it's a term used across business. It's a term that just gets peppered into every series of remarks that the United States delivers, whether we're talking about security, economy, like wherever we're talking, we usually use this, you know, this touchstone of partner of choice, partner of choice. It strikes me that it may be one that we use for our own gratification, uh, because there are no partners that are talking about us as, you know, oh, yes, the United States is the partner of choice. It's really identified by the engagement or the subject matter or or the need. Right. And I think there are times when partners are going to make a calculation like, hey, there are two fairly even options here. But we've done so many things with partner X. We're going to turn to partner Y because we want to diversify. You know, so getting at this from a point at which the United States recognizes and accepts without feeling the need to react is that we must recognize that in Southeast Asia in particular, most of these states have relationships with the two states that we've identified as geopolitical rivals or opponents or pacing threats or whatever term you want to use, namely People's Republic of China and Russia. They have deep defense relationships. They have very, very considerable and, and significant economic relationships. And that is where, you know, if we want to talk about competition, we are competing for market share and we're competing for attention, but we can't be angry when a partner elects to accept a deal with, with the Chinese as opposed to accept a deal with an American company, uh, because it's just, it's counterproductive and it doesn't reflect well on us when we then stand up afterward and imply that our partner doesn't understand the predatory economics being used by Beijing. Our partners, you know, have fallen victim to this grand plan when really, you know, they are acting according to their own national interest. So Blake, I mean, as a Southeast Asian, I had a lot to agree with about your article, but I'm just wondering what was it that prompted you to write this piece? I mean, you've read, you've written similar pieces with elements of this article uh, in your previous writings before. But I think this particular piece in the foreign policy really summed up many of the emotions and sentiments that many Southeast Asians have tried to put forward multiple times before. What was it that really prompted you to write what you wrote in foreign policy this time? So I, I had taken a step back to try and just think about what has gone well or not so well in maybe the first two years of the Biden administration's approach to the Indo-Pacific and taking it regionally and beginning with Southeast Asia, being a resident myself, you know, there was, there's a lot of promising, I think, signs and there's a lot of indications 
But then at the same time, there's still a lot of the same bad habits that I think we carry over from administration to administration. And I think some of those are just sort of baked into the way that we approach the region. It's not that I have a particularly uh, unique or special perspective, but I feel like that speaking from the region as an American, like maybe that that voice is hopefully at least somewhat useful in Washington. Like, hey, are you understanding the way that you're perceived when you act this way? Like when we say these things, which I have been guilty of myself, obviously, um, over the course of 10 years, uh, a lot of learning has taken place, I would like to say, or I'd like to believe, you know, sometimes we really need to reflect a bit more humility in our approach, uh, particularly in a region where we have our own troubled history. You know, it doesn't help us to point at troubled history of other states when we have our own legacies uh, with a number of states in the region that are not particularly positive. And we can't be hostage to those, but we do need to reflect those in our approach and, and consider the fact that, you know, we cannot address Southeast Asia as if we've never put a foot wrong, as if we haven't been here too for the last, you know, 80 years doing some things that maybe were not helpful. I certainly agree and, and think that probably all of us have written and chided the administration in the past for uh, or not just this administration, multiple U.S. administrations, for particularly the hectoring tone that has at times been taken towards South Asian partners. And this has been most obvious, as you point out in the article, on the economic front, right? And going to partners and saying, all Chinese loans are bad and all Chinese investments are bad. You're, don't you realize that you're opening yourselves up to, uh, you know, corruptions and all the various ills of Pandora's box? It's probably not helpful. And it makes it makes us look um, school marmish and, and it, it disregards the agency of our South Asian partners. So I'm all on board on that. And I'm totally on board with your attacks on the lack of, of a trade policy um, and you know the need to come back to something like CPTPP. I guess where I want to see a little more clarity, and I understand that this is a short article, as most FP pieces are, um, and you can't do everything in it. You are by necessity painting in broad strokes. And, and I guess my argument is always, and Alina's probably tired of hearing it, that there's no such thing as a Southeast Asian opinion on anything. There are, at the very least, 10 kind of national policies and myriad aspects of the debate within each of those countries. So, I mean, on some issues, security, for instance, is it unreasonable for the U.S. to expect the Philippines, in exchange for an Article 5 commitment, to not have a robust military relationship with China and Russia? That seems perfectly reasonable to me. And I totally agree with you. Uh, and I, I've written on this before, you know, Philippines in particular is a special case. There are things obviously that you're well aware of and more so than I, uh, with the alliance that we are still struggling with, but in, in places where the relationship is, you know, uh, determined or, or spelled out in an alliance framework, absolutely. There's a reasonable expectation that the United States has some input, uh, has some pretty fair asks, you know, getting beyond the broad brush, certainly, I think it is very fair to ask Philippines, hey, maybe stop hosting, uh, you know, Russian ships in Philippines, that would be better for us. Um, but we have this problem in a lot of places, you know, we deal with this uh, with Israel as well, very, very close defense partnership. And also, every once in a while, we turn around like, hey, Israel, what, what are you doing? Can you please stop? Please stop that. And they're like, well, this is, you know, this is a sovereign decision. Like, yeah, but, you know, maybe we don't do that. We have the same problem with the UAE. Like, hey, we're going to sell you the F-35. Are you really letting the Chinese build a naval facility in the port, like right next to us? Like that would, it would be better if you didn't, you know? So 
certainly Washington has to strike this balance. And I think there is some element of, uh, you know, superpower relations. You have a security partner that is a superpower. You have to be prepared to make some concessions and kind of respect their interests in some cases. Otherwise, uh, you may end up forfeiting that security commitment because you do kind of volunteer to give up some of that security independence when you have a treaty ally. So, Blake, what do you think is the way forward? I know you wrote a bit about the, the trade and economic piece, but given the political climate in Washington that everybody knows about, the U.S.'s return to a TPP-like structure, at least as it is now, is probably not going to happen in the next few years, maybe not even in the next five to 10 years. What's the solution? I guess, and, and this may be impractical, but one of the things I would like to see is Washington making the case to Americans for why global trade and why free trade is a good thing. And yes, there are aspects of it that we have not managed uh, well in the past, which contributes to the negative legacy that we're now dealing with that makes both administrations feel like their hands are tied on trade. But there should be room for a positive discussion about how free trade has built the world that is very advantageous to the United States and how sitting on the sidelines of the forums where the new rules for trade are going to be written is not going to be beneficial to the United States. And I'd like to see at least some effort at conversation around that. You know, I'm from Idaho originally, you know, my, my parents still live there. I would like to see a conversation with Idaho. Here is why free trade with Asia matters to you, because it does. You know, you have very significant ties. I mean, the state of Idaho, actually, you know, Micron, uh, we're dealing with semiconductors, uh, agricultural products. These are immense sources of income for the state of Idaho, which is landlocked and small in population. But Asia really matters. Uh, And in that respect, I really like what the East West uh, Center has has done in the past with their kind of Asia matters stuff. And I'd like to see more discussion around that. I'd like to see, you know, IPEF be a bit more meaningful if we can find a way to do that. You know, if we're going to name ASEAN as a strategic partner, like, what is that going to mean? Are we just going to, I'd like to see getting beyond double counting things, you know, just sort of, hey, we're already doing this. What if we rename it and we call it something else so it looks like a new thing? I think there is a lot of room for creative thinking in things like uh, technology and investment that we could do better uh, with a bit more original thinking as opposed to kind of the rebranding. So the fundamental argument that the U.S. cannot rest wholly on its security relationships, even those that have some expectation of, if not exclusivity, then certainly like keeping the the relation with your adversaries limited, as in the Philippines, Singapore to a degree, maybe Thailand. Um, I wholeheartedly agree. And the argument that the U.S. needs to engage is awfully difficult um, and counterproductive for a U.S. that's not engaging in economic rulemaking, not engaging in free trade, not providing significant capital for hard infrastructure and the like to walk around the region finger-wagging about what countries in need of development assistance and trade decide to do in in the absence of U.S. engagement. I guess the, the immediate thought, though, is what about those economic issues where clearly the U.S. and many of its partners and allies have decided that there is a national security threat. And the two most obvious recent examples are 5G and now export controls on advanced semiconductors. In this week, or potentially next week, we might get word that the Japanese and the Dutch are on board with some version of US export controls. And 
it's not even a debate anymore. The reality is there is no middle ground left on these two issues. You're either on a Chinese side of the 5G debate or you're on the, you know, American plus side. You're either with or against us on on export controls. Do you think the U.S. is? Is it viable for the U.S. to force those binary choices on regional partners, particularly those that are non-allies, but still maintain the kind of open-mindedness that you're talking about, you know, that they will engage with China on other issues and that's fine. Maybe we can draw some limited lines of things that we should consider off limits. Greg, I'd say even even those um, the countries that are treaty allies, like Thailand, for example. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and when it comes to 5G, I mean, we, we're talking about Philippines, Singapore, uh, more recently, Malaysia having either banning or having thought about banning Chinese Chinese involvement. Semiconductors, nobody in the region's on board yet, um, but they might find that they don't have a choice. There's nowhere to get chips uh, below a certain size if the Americans, Japanese, and Dutch all are on board with these restrictions. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And, you know, to a degree, you know, superpower is going to superpower, I guess, which is, you know, works better for you if you're on, you know, if you're in Washington than if you're in Thailand. There will be uncomfortable choices. Uh, I don't subscribe to the notion that we are not forcing choices. You know, obviously we are. Some of those are not going to go down well. Uh, and we there will be, have to be some real management around those, particularly with allies uh, and very, very close partners like Singapore. I think we are going to see the same thing in Southeast Asia that we are or should be seeing in places like the Middle East, where we have to think about where our limits are with our own partners, right? And, and we have to be <clears throat> very honest and, and talk about these things up front. Hey, we understand that you have these relationships with the PRC and here are where our red lines are for cooperation in certain sectors. And it is your choice if you would like to pursue relations with the PRC outside of those. But here are the things that we cannot do if that is your choice. You know, and that's, that's just going to be the world we live in. You know, if your state has a uh, a Chinese 5G network and you're looking at a 6G relationship, you know, is it reasonable that you would then also purchase um, high-end, you know, American defense equipment? Probably not. Those things are going to be incompatible. Uh, and that's just, I guess, the world that we have built and the world that is emerging around us. There will be limitations on cooperation based on what sector we're talking about. And it's it will cause friction, certainly. I think there are going to be some uncomfortable discussions. There's probably going to be a bit of public discomfort with some of these choices. You know, the semiconductor one is, is particularly polarizing. You know, it, it's one that will affect everyone. It affects the entire world. But that is, you know, and that's kind of, I use that cliched uh, Lee Kuan Yew quote, it's been written into the dirt, but states don't want to be caught in between. But it's going to happen. There will be times where states are caught between the United States and China uh, as they kind of jostle in the region. And it, and it will be unpleasant. And everyone knows that. I think a question that stymies me, I guess, is almost a parallel to your economic analogy, Blake. Why can't there be more creative thinking in this area? And why have we kind of boxed ourselves in into the situation, and by we, I mean like all of us, uh, but particularly the U.S. and China, there doesn't seem to be an off-ramp in this area, and everyone's just talking about this binary that um, seems inevitable. Why does it have to be this way? And I think this is the question for Southeast Asians and for an opportunity for Southeast Asia to is it that agency that we keep talking about, but why does it have to be either or? 
Particularly on the question of semiconductors, I, I think Chris Miller's book is, uh, you know, Chip War, I think is, is very illuminating on the subject. I think it's worth reading uh, and it's, you know, it's excellent. I, I enjoyed it. But the reason I think it's particularly useful is it highlights kind of the developments on each side of that market. And if you watch particularly Beijing's pursuit of things like AI superiority and kind of the language that they use around that and their business practices around the semiconductor industry, I think the Biden administration's moves here have, have actually been pretty fair uh, whilst uh, recognize kind of the, the cognitive dissonance required to say like, this is okay, but like I'm also arguing against it in this article, particularly with, with semiconductors, this is sort of the core of the global economy and the global economy going forward in the future. And the way that, that Beijing has approached this in the past is to appropriate technology and then shut out U.S. companies from its market where it can. And so I think it's pretty fair for the Biden administration to act to stop them from surpassing uh, American firms and from putting American businesses uh, out of the market. Uh, and that is, that's going to reverberate across a decade, you know, or more. I mean, this is a huge, this was a huge decision uh, and one that I do respect. Uh, and it's, you know, there's responsibility in Beijing as well. You know, they have, they have taken a lot of really non-productive and uh, anti-competitive moves in that sphere. And the United States finally said, look, we're going to put a ring fence around this and that's going to, you know, hurt you. And we're doing it on purpose. Beijing's approach to trade for a long time has been we could say anti-competitive. And I think it's reached the point where the United States can no longer tolerate that. I tend to agree on this point. Um, and I going into this conversation, I assumed it was going to be much more of, of you and Alina disagreeing with me. But it seems like we all have, well, there's some Venn diagram here where some of this overlaps in ways that are compelling. You know, I think that it is reasonable, given China's behavior over now decades, for the U.S. to say we're not obligated to help China undermine both our economic competitiveness and our national security and that of our, our allies. Um, and if Japan and, and the Dutch and to a degree now the Koreans, you know, maybe agree, then that's that's the world we live in. But we can do a whole lot more, I think, to help some of that bitter pill go down a little easier. The U.S. could be engaging in things like CPTPP. It could make an IPEF that actually helps people. Right. There's there's a million ways that you could say, OK, this is necessary. Um, we view it as necessary. And we're sorry that it's going to be painful. But as your ally and partner, we would like to make it a little less painful. And I, I worry that we're not doing enough of that. Right. We are coming in with a lot of sticks and some carrots on things like decarbonization and maybe maybe supply chain diversification. But at, at the macro level, we're just not providing public goods in a way that we need to if we really want to compete for influence, not just in South Asia, but across the global South. I don't know if, if Alina agrees or if she thinks that even something like the semiconductor export controls are just inherently uh, ill-conceived. No, I think a lot of thought went into it, and I can certainly understand it from the U.S.'s perspective. Um, my frustrations actually lie with Southeast Asian countries themselves, governments rather, um, and not being more creative in their thinking about, you know, carving their own way and trying to get uh, the region out of this muddle. Right, well, look, we are at time, more or less. And so my takeaway is uh, we all agree the U.S. needs to do better and Southeast Asian countries need to do better. And we didn't really say it, but I think we probably all agree that China should do a lot better. That just wasn't the focus of the article. 
Uh, so with that, until the next uh, episode, I'm going to wish everybody a fond farewell. Thank you again for listening. Alina, thank you as always for co-hosting. And Blake, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. And uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be seeing you guys again after so long. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe, and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer. Our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Stephen Vo. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.